Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. All right, all right. That's long enough. That's long enough. Let's come back together. That's long enough. All right. So let's, let's get into it. Let me pray. And uh, that might make sense in a couple of minutes time. We'll see. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for uh, bringing us all here this morning uh, from all different backgrounds and with all different things going on. And Father, we pray that by your spirit and through your word, that you'd meet us this morning in your word. Uh, Father, encourage us, strengthen us, challenge us, motivate us, inspire us. But above all, make us a little bit more like Jesus this morning. Uh, Father, I pray for those here this morning who don't yet trust the Lord Jesus, that today might be that day where they come to see, hear and love him. And for all of us, we pray that by your spirit, we would see, hear and love Jesus uh, and desire with the strength of the Holy Spirit to live for him in this world, certain of the next. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been working through the book of Revelation uh, for the past couple of months, uh, or perhaps, I don't know, you've been snoozing during talks and you've kind of missed them, I don't know. Uh, But the book of Revelation, right, is written to the end of the first century AD. And as we've been working through the first seven chapters of the book of Revelation, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been citing, when I've been up the front, I've been citing from a very famous letter from this guy on the left, he's coming, Where is he? Is he there? Hey, this guy on the left. Um, This is Pliny. Uh, Pliny was the governor of the region, pretty much where Revelation is written to, just a little bit north um, of the region that where this this letter of Revelation is written to. Uh, So Pliny on the left wrote this letter to the guy on the right, who is Emperor. Anyone know? Not Augustus. No, Trajan. Trajan. So this is a letter from Pliny. I've been citing this letter from uh, Governor Pliny to Emperor Trajan, writing about 15 years after the book of Revelation was was given or written by the Apostle John. Um, Written to pretty much the same region where Revelation is kind of addressed to, modern-day Turkey or Asia, as it is referred to in the Word. I've read several passages Uh, But let me just share with you one particular passage to give you a bit of a feel for the times. This is Pliny writing to Emperor Trajan. Pliny says, For the moment, this is the line I have taken with all persons brought before me on the charge of being Christian. I have asked them in person if they are Christian, and if they admit it, I repeat the question a second or third time, providing a warning of the punishments awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. There have been others, similarly fanatical, who are Roman citizens. You actually can't kill them on the spot. I have entered them on a list of persons to be sent to Rome for trial. It is reported to me that the sum total of their guilt or error amounted to no more than this. They had met regularly before dawn. Pause there for a minute. Why are they meeting regularly before dawn? Because, well, you had to be in secret. They met regularly before dawn on a fixed day and sung antiphonally a hymn to Christ 
as God. Now, that's why I asked you, antiphonal, do you know what antiphonal means? Antiphonal basically means when this side sings, amazing grace, how sweet that you didn't get it, right? <laughs> Should we do it again? Amazing grace, stop. How sweet the, that's, you got it, right? That's sort of, that's antiphonal singing, right? So they met in secret before dawn. They gathered together on a fixed day to sing, sing antiphonally a hymn to Christ as to God and to bind themselves by oath, he goes on, not by any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft, robbery and adultery. How about that? This made me decide, he goes on, it was all the more necessary to extract the truth by torture from two slave women whom they called deaconesses. I found nothing but a degenerate sort of cult carried to extravagant lengths. I have therefore postponed any further examination and hastened to consult you, Emperor Trajan. Emperor Trajan then writes back a few months later and basically says to Pliny, well done, carry on. So as long as they are proven to be Christians, kill them. The extraordinary thing is, right, that we know pretty much exactly how Christians, followers of Jesus, were responding during this period of heightened kind of oppression and persecution from the Romans. We have a letter from this guy. Ignatius, there you go, Ignatius of Antioch. We have a letter from this guy who was a really important Christian leader in exactly the same part of the world in pretty much the same period. Ignatius's name was actually on that list, right, that Pliny pulled together to send Christians to Rome for trial. Ignatius, on his way to Rome, wrote several letters to various churches, and within 12 months, he himself was executed for following Christ. We've got these really precious letters, about a dozen of them that kind of happened immediately after the New Testament kind of finishes. This is a letter to Christians living in Ephesus, same people, same part of the world as Revelation. He writes this, pray continually for the rest of humanity that they may find God for there is hope of their repentance. So allow them to be instructed by you, at least by your deeds. In response to their anger, be gentle. In response to their boasts, in response to their boasts, be humble. In response to their slander, offer prayers. In response to their errors, be steadfast in the faith. In response to their cruelty, be civilized. Do not be eager to imitate them. Let us by show by our gracious forbearance that we are their brothers and sisters, and let us be eager to be imitators of the Lord. Gracious mission amidst awful persecution was the default mode of Christians, many Christians in this period. And part of what made this gracious perseverance amidst really hard conditions possible was, guess what? The book of Revelation, written to believers in this region 15 years before this horrific outbreak of persecution took place. And the Apostle John, who writes this letter, inspired by the Spirit, had himself been exiled from the city of Ephesus to the island of Patmos. The Roman officials wanted him out of the way, and he writes the book of Revelation to the churches of Asia, modern-day Turkey, as this persecution ramps up. 
And from there, he writes what is a very simple message, despite the complex scenes and all the imagery, a very simple message that could be summarized this way. If the crucified Jesus is the risen Lord of the universe, then those who trust his loving sacrifice and who entrust them to his way of sacrificial love will be eternally vindicated. And John drives this message home to the churches in Asia, not with simple theological arguments, but as we've seen through this literary genre called apocalyptic, an ancient Jewish style of writing, often used in anxious, troubled times, to unveil vital, hope-giving truths through coded imagery. And wow, do we come across some pretty wacky imagery today in the section we're looking at. See, the great thing about apocalyptic genre was that um, not only do your enemies have no idea what's being said or no idea kind of what you're on, it also means you could ignite the imagination and stir the heart using the craziest of symbols to drive home hope-bringing, stirring theological truths that even a 14-year-old sitting in a church in late first century Ephesus could understand, but for us, it takes a little bit more work to get our heads around it. Well, our text today that we come to, um, Revelation chapter eight, nine, 10, and 11, is another pause in the sort of unfolding plans that we see in the book of Revelation. I don't know if you remember last week, if you're here, Ruben Salagaris opened up the world. And when we looked at Revelation 6 and 7, there was a, a break between the sixth and the seventh seal of this giant scroll that was sort of being unraveled. This long interlude in chapter 7 where we were told about the 144,000 um, Israelites who would be ultimately saved, and they would join with the great multitude of people from every tribe and language and nation. And then there was this pause between the sixth and the seventh seal, which reminded us that amidst all the calamity and the evil and the oppression and the change of this world, the people of God are safe. And when that pause is over and the seventh seal is broken, we're immediately introduced not to the end of the story, but to seven trumpets. And the seven, seven trumpets, right, sound their way through chapters eight and nine of the book of Revelation, which we'll only look at really briefly. Each trumpet, if you open up with me to Revelation chapter eight, each trumpet announces a dramatic image of judgment coming on the world. And so the first trumpet sounds, chapter 8, verse 7. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. Verse 8. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. Verse 10. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. And on and on and on and on it goes, right through to the sixth trumpet, right over in chapter, seven, uh, chapter 9, verse 13. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. 
which unleashes great judgment. Let me just say right here, these descriptions are not actual kind of judgment in the sense of apocalyptic language doesn't work like that. It uses these dramatic, frightening images as warnings of the actual judgment to come. By the end of the trumpets, sixth and seventh trumpets, we get our pause. And it's in this kind of pause between the sixth and the seventh trumpet that we learn what the pause is actually all about. You see, after the sixth trumpet, the the sixth warning of God's judgment, the world at this point hasn't turned back to God despite all these warnings and actions of judgment. Glance with me, the world hasn't yet turned back. Chapter nine, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons, the idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. All of which raises the question that our pause today answers. What will it take to bring the world to repentance? What will it take to bring the world back to God? The six, at least the first six trumpets seemed really ineffective. What will it take? And our pause is designed to give us the answer. Just as the pause between the sixth and seventh seal communicated to us that the people of God are safe, the pause between the sixth and seven trumpets tells us about the mission of God's people in the world. And it comes in two really simple scenes. In chapter 10, we learn about God's, uh, John's mission in the world. And then in chapter 11, we're introduced to the mysterious two witnesses and their mission to the world. And it's only after that little interlude that we find out what the seventh trumpet is all about at the end. That's the plan this morning. John's mission and the mission of the two witnesses. And we're now going to read Revelation chapter 10. And I'm going to ask Nicole to come up and do that for us. The microphone's just next to you. Revelation chapter 10 is on page 1923 of the Church Bibles if you want to follow along. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it and the sea and all that is in it and said, There will be no more delay, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. 
Then the voice I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages and kings. Thank you, Nicole. Uh, we, can, we can be brief uh, here. Um, right at the beginning of chapter 10, where uh, we're introduced to a, spectac- a spectacular angel, uh, verse 1, who is called Mighty. Uh, we've seen angels already throughout the book of Revelation. This one is a mighty angel, and you bet he is. He is so big, right, that he has one foot, his right foot planted on the sea, and he's got his left foot planted on the land. And you kind of might go, like, I know a little bit of geography, like if he's got his right foot kind of planted in the ocean and his left foot on the sea, why don't he be a little bit kind of lopsided? But really, he's just so huge that the right foot, the water is just kind of like splashing against his, I don't know, angelic sandal or whatever he's wearing. Like, he's huge. This is a new thing, right? A gigantic angelic being standing on land and sea. And I think the geographical reference is really significant and deliberate because next week we'll be introduced to a beast that comes out of the sea and then to another beast that kind of comes out of the land. But here is an angel who straddles both land and sea. What's the point? Everything is under divine oversight. Everything is under the sovereign control of God. Not everything, though, is revealed to us. Did you notice chapter 10, verse 4? John hears, you know, seven thunders speak, and he, and he kind of picks up his pen, and then he hears this, no, 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 don't write that. Don't write that. Put your pen down. I think the point is there are some things which we just don't know, some things that are withheld from us. But God knows everything. Everything is known to him. He straddles land and sea. And then this massive angel, right, holds this little scroll. Not the giant scroll of chapter five, a little one sitting in his hand. And in verse two, the angel is massive, the scroll is small, and it lays open in his hand. And it's offered to John. What's the scroll? The scroll is simply the message that John preaches, which is why he has to eat it in verse nine. Have a look, verse nine. So John, I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It's a bit weird. This is just the gospel which John, the writer of Revelation, has been proclaiming for 60 years since he witnessed the life, the teaching, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is the news that the crucified and risen Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, is the Lord God himself, saviour of the world. It's just a simple gospel message, but it's a bittersweet message. Have a look, verse 10. I took the scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. 
It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. It's a beautiful message that Almighty God voluntarily debased himself on a Roman cross for our sins, for my sins, for your sins. Friends, if this is true, this is the most beautiful, true, and relevant news imaginable. But it causes trouble for those who remain faithful to it. Those like John who bear witness to it. He, after all, is on the island of Patmos, His gospel is bittersweet. I heard a story once of a a woman, a Chinese woman at a conference in China which was for underground pastors. This woman was on the stage and, and she was sharing about her husband had been imprisoned by the Chinese government in a hard labor camp for simply preaching the gospel in public. He'd been there for a long time. But she stood on the stage and she stood there apparently weeping with tears because she'd just heard news that two of the officials in the camp holding her husband captive had turned to Christ. Bittersweet. Bittersweet. And what's true of John's mission in chapter 10 is also true of the mysterious two witnesses in chapter 11. And a spoiler alert, before Nicole comes and reads chapter 11, the two witnesses are a picture of the church, God's people, in its bittersweet mission. Turn over, turn up, Revelation chapter 11. Nicole is going to come and read that for us right now. Thank you. Revelation chapter 11. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. 
But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. And at that very hour there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. All right. Revelation chapter 10, John's mission, Revelation chapter 11, we turn to the mission of the mysterious, or not so mysterious now, two witnesses. Um, have a look there. Uh, John, at the beginning of this chapter, is told to measure the temple that is in Jerusalem. Verse 1, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go measure the temple of God. It's kind of interesting that this happens because the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed 30 years earlier, right? Before John had this vision. We know that the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem around 80, uh, sorry, 70 AD. So it's obviously symbolic here, right? Every reader knew this. In fact, um, during John's period, the Romans made coins, right, that you'd use for dealing and wheeling, you know, wheeling and dealing with like images representing when the temple in Jerusalem was smashed, kind of celebrating that victory. In fact, the temple and the city that's mentioned are symbolic. Verse 8, you can see, you can think of this city figuratively. Uh, firstly, you can think of it figuratively as Sodom, a place of terrible injustice and sexual immorality. Or you can think of it as Egypt, a place famous for its dark arts and slavery and physical oppression. Or you can think of the city as Jerusalem, the place where Jesus was crucified. But the picture really that's being painted is that here we have a tiny little sanctuary of true believers huddled together, huddled together amidst a great city of tyranny and brutality and idolatry and oppression and unbelief. The sanctuary and the people are measured. Have a look, verse one, measure the temple, measure the altar and, and, and its worshipers as well. So there's a lot of measuring going on. I get, what does this mean? I think partly the measuring is something to do with ownership. 
Uh, So here is God laying claim on his people, his sanctuary, just as you might go and kind of measure the rooms in a house that you're thinking of buying or laying claim on. But I think there's more to it. I think it's a way of saying that God's people are utterly distinct from the pagan world around them. They're measured off from the rest of the world even measured off from the outer part of the temple, which was being trampled by the nations. Now, I know this might, for some of us, bring back, you know, kind of bad memories of former church experiences or or conjure up images of, like, holy huddles, you know, completely distinct from the world and cut off from the rest of society. But in a sense, I think that's kind of right. The Christian community is a distinct community, with defining beliefs and defining doctrines that give rise to defining ways of living and operating in the world that are kind of non-negotiable. Um, just to get a bit like nerdy and geeky for a minute, um, there was a really influential study. It's coming up. There's a book coming up on the screen. I think. Yay, there you go. A really, yeah, a bit nerdy, a bit geeky. This was a study done um, a couple of decades ago by a guy named Wayne Meeks on the left-hand side. That's not Wayne Meeks on the right, by the way, but um, Wayne Meeks published this book. Uh, it was research that he did out of Yale University. Um, really interesting sort of analysis of the sociological and historical factors that were at play in the first century. And a central conclusion that Meeks came to was that a decisive factor in the expansion of Christianity that kind of ultimately took over the the kind of the world was its sharp definition over and against the Roman world combined with its openness to anyone who wanted to be part of the redefinition. So two things together, right? Sharply defining itself over and against the world around it, but a real openness to welcome people in who wanted to be part of it. Meeks' description is that early Christianity had really high walls with open gates. High walls, open gates. And both were critical for the mission. Coincidentally, um, just in the last couple of weeks, someone sent me a link to Tim Keller. That's the guy on the right. Tim Keller, really influential Christian leader, um, public intellectual, um, who was actually addressing this, really, this very topic. Um, He was speaking to uh, the British Parliament, um, to British church leaders and politicians, you know, as you do, and he was asked to address the topic, what can Christians do for 21st century society? What can Christians do for 21st century society? You can watch his talk, you can read the transcript. His answer, in a nutshell, stand apart from culture or risk being ineffective. Stand apart from culture or risk being ineffective. It's really powerful the way that he puts it. You see, it isn't watered down Christianity that changes and impacts the world. It's concentrated Christianity that changes and impacts the world. It's a Christianity that is clearly defined, radically different from the world around it, high walls and yet willingly opening its gates to anyone who wants to join. And I'm pretty sure like everywhere in the world where the church is growing, it's a very tightly defined Christianity that's on show 
It's not a really flexible, liberal, truth is endlessly elastic kind of church in Christianity. Churches around the world that are growing are, are tightly defined and it really welcoming. High walled with warm welcomes. Well, the rest of the scene in Revelation chapter 11 sets mission and persecution in parallel, mission and suffering. Have a, note, have a look with me together. So in verse two, the outer courts have been given to the nations and they trample on the holy city for 42 months. And you say, what on earth is 42 months all about? Um, I learned, this is a side note by the way, I learned during the week, I listened to old person's radio, ABC 891. If you're out there with me, that's you know, good. I learned during the week that centipedes have 42 legs. There you go. As someone said, 42 is the answer to everything, right? Um, there you go. What's with 42 months? It's actually, if you, if, you do the, if you do the numbers, it's three and a half years. What does that mean? Um, notice with me that God appoints two missionaries, for example, for exactly the same time period. Verses three and four of chapter 11. I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy, they'll preach for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, 1,260 days is 42 months, which is three and a half years. So what? Well, through the book of Revelation, the number seven is the number of wholeness, completeness. Three and a half just says, this isn't the whole story. This is just part of the story. But notice how persecution and mission go together. They overlap. They overlap in this period. But neither is the whole story. Why? Because one day when the Lord Jesus returns... His kingdom will come in completeness. And when Jesus returns, when his kingdom comes in its fullness, persecution, oppression, tyranny will all be overthrown and mission will be no more. For there will come a day when God's patience and his amnesty with the world will end. And there'll be no longer persecution, no longer any mission. But until then, in this 42 months, this three and a half years that we all live in now, mission and persecution go hand in hand. And verse four is where we find out who the two witnesses represent. And they represent the church. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the Lord. And you go, lampstands? Yeah, yeah, lampstands. I've heard that somewhere before in Revelation. And you'd be right. Um, in the opening vision of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, we get this key. Don't miss it. It says, the lampstands are the churches. That's just John kind of easing us in on a Sunday morning. You know, like revelation for dummies. You know, the lampstands are the churches. So here, the two witnesses are the lampstands, but they're also olive trees. And you go, huh? And you're thinking, where in Revelation have olive trees been mentioned? Anyone know where olive trees have been mentioned in Revelation? Anywhere? They haven't. There you go. Um, they haven't been mentioned. 
We've got to go back to the Old Testament to understand this. Zechariah 4.3, where olive trees in Zechariah 4.3 are symbolic of God's leaders in the church, the leaders of God's people. So the two witnesses are both the leaders of God's people and God's people, the church. What we have here is a picture of the church and its leaders on mission together, John and his churches. And why two witnesses? You know, one would be easier, right? Just one witness, or why not seven? Seven would be pretty cool, like the complete package of witnesses. Why two? I simply think it's because of the Old Testament legal principle outlined like in places like Deuteronomy 19, uh, where the testimony is only valid on the basis of two witnesses. All that to say, brothers and sisters, what we have here is a picture of the church going about its powerful mission in the world. And wow, it's, it's so powerful. Verse five, I bet you were creeped out when you heard Nicole read this. If anyone tries to harm them, the two witnesses, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. And you may be thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't wanna be part of that mission. Like, I want to I love people. I want to serve people. I want to get along with people. Remember, this is just a picture, right? In Revelation, whenever you hear of something coming out of a mouth, you've got to remember it's the gospel. It's the message of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and his return. It's the word of the gospel. And here it's, in verse 5, it's just a reference to the gospel being the thing that will turn over everything that oppresses it. There's no getting around the gospel. It's the most powerful thing. Brothers and sisters, when you speak of Jesus, you're speaking fire. And they can also do crazy things, these two witnesses. Verse six, they can shut up the heavens, they can make oceans blood, bring plagues on the earth at will. If we had more time, which we don't, I'd, I'd like to show you how all of these have an Old Testament background. But the point is, these are all pictures of judgment, pictures of the preaching of judgment. Because judgment is part of the gospel. Sorry, Siri. Judgment is part of the gospel, right? That God sees everything and he will judge it and bring all things to right. The wonderful thing of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has borne in himself the judgment that we deserve for our sin. So that we, whoever of us repent of our sin, turn to Christ and seek in the power of the Spirit to live for him, will be safe on judgment day. But whoever rejects the call will face judgment alone and be forever apart from God. See, the point of all this imagery is that what we are doing here at North Adelaide to take the good news of Jesus to residents of North Adelaide, to residents of the inner north, to people in Adelaide, Australia, and to the ends of the earth. What we're trying to do sometimes, right, can seem mundane and it can seem unsuccessful, it can seem weak, but it's cosmic, it's eternal, it's powerful, it's the difference between everlasting life and everlasting torment. 
Our message is cosmic, it's eternal, it's powerful, it's significant, yet it doesn't protect us from harm. The mission is bittersweet. Verse seven. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. A really awful thing to happen to someone in the first century. In verse 10, the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. We promote the most beautiful, true, and relevant message that is available on the planet. God has given himself for you. He's purchased you from the clutches of sin and death with his own blood so that you can spend eternity with him. It's extraordinary. But anyone who genuinely lives by it, any local church like us that lives it out will suffer. And when we suffer, all we need to know is that God's faithful witnesses will be vindicated. Just as Jesus, the center of our message was also raised. Verse 11, but after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. When they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Underline that in your Bible. I don't know, on your device, do it somehow or, you know, underline that glory to the God of heaven. It's possible that this just means that on the last day, People will give glory to God because they'll see that Jesus was raised and that people are vindicated. But there's also an interpretation that I think is better and is the answer to the implicit question of this pause of chapters 10 and 11. What was the question? What will it take to lead the world to repentance? Answer, God's people bearing testimony and suffering. God's people bearing testimony and suffering. That leads the world to finally give glory to God in heaven. It's the bittersweet mission of the church in all of its power and all of its suffering which leads the world to give glory to God. And only then, at the completion of the mission, does the seventh trumpet sound and God's kingdom comes in full. Verse 15 the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let me conclude. Um, you may or may not know this about me, but I'm a bit of a census nerd um, anyone else a census nerd? 
Yeah, the ABS, Australian Bureau of Statistics, recently it was a massive week for census nerds, the last week. Um, the ABS finally released the gates and out comes the 2021 ABS census data um, and it's just life-changing. No, um, there was lots of interesting stuff, right? I don't know if you'd caught a hold of it in the news and things like that, but lots of interesting stuff and praise God, there's more to come. It's going to be amazing. Um, as anticipated, right, when it comes to religious stuff in Australia, um, Christianity does remain the kind of most common religion in Australia, with 44% of people identifying as Christian. But interestingly and anticipated, that's reduced significantly again. So with 44% in Australia as at 2021, it used to be 61% just 10 years ago. And we've become, as a result of that, a minority group in Australia as Christians. So as anticipated, less and less people identifying as Christian and more and more people identifying as no religion. So this time around, 39% of Australians reported as having no religion, whereas just 10 years ago, it was only 22%. So that's doubled in 10 years. It's doubled. Um, and interestingly, as a side note, um, South Australia, sort of slash Adelaide, is actually the, has the highest number of people who identify as no religion in all of Australia by quite a way. It's really interesting if you're into that sort of stuff. But Christianity is on the decline, no religion is on the up. And as you can imagine, right, once again, media outlets kind of jumped on this stuff. Um, again, my favorite radio station, ABC Adelaide, took great delight in playing REMs, losing my religion. Yeah, like they just they loved it. It was the song of the day on Wednesday. And you know, like I've said this before, right? You know, we may see these numbers of Christians declining in Australia, and the media jumps on and says, look, Australia's losing its religion, and they write articles and they make podcasts about it. And certainly, right, in a, in a country which is enamored by popularity, that what's popular is kind of real, what's popular is valid, people start making arguments, right? We'll see how less and less people are Christian in our country, therefore, well, the gospel or the Christian faith is less valid. They can make arguments, but it's not true. None of us, right, want to be unpopular, do we? None of us want to deliberately be on the wrong side of history. But for us to buy into the idea that you know, validity is deeply connected to popularity is just not true and it doesn't hold out. Just because less and less people in our society claim to be Christian does not mean that the gospel is any less beautiful, powerful, true, or relevant. Our mission, brothers and sisters, remains to bear witness to Jesus in word and deed and to cop whatever suffering comes. And so I can't resist quoting Ignatius again, himself martyred within a year of writing these words, writing at precisely the time Governor Pliny is torturing two young deaconesses and killing myriads of Christians. And Ignatius says, pray continually for the rest of humanity as well, that they may find God, for there is hope of their repentance. So allow them to be instructed by you, at least by your deeds, 
In response to their anger, be gentle. In response to their boasts, be humble. In response to their slander, offer prayers. In response to their errors, be steadfast in the faith. In response to their cruelty, be civilized. Do not be eager to imitate them. Let us show by our gracious forbearance that we are their brothers and sisters. And let us, to be, let us be eager to be imitators of our Lord. That's our mission. To bear witness to the crucified and risen Jesus. And to bear witness whatever hardship comes. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Again, we thank you for the way that your word doesn't shy away from truth and reality. Father, we reminded this morning, Father, of the bittersweet nature of the mission that you've called us into. That we are men and women and kids who hold the most wonderful news on the planet, that Jesus Christ, your son, was crucified and yet he lives and is returning. There is no better news than to know that through faith in Jesus, our sins are forgiven and we have the hope of eternal life. And yet we also know that holding on to this truth can cause problems for those who seek to hold closely to it. And Father, we pray this morning for those around the world, our brothers and sisters, for whom there is a genuine sense of bittersweetness about following you, that they know the wonderful truth of the gospel and yet their lives day to day are really challenging. And so we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters all around the globe, Father, strengthen them, encourage them, embolden them, give them strength to stand firm. And Father, as we think about them, their courage in the face of suffering, may it embolden us in the place in which we live, right here, where we are very free to proclaim the good news, may it embolden us to do so. And Father, as a church, as a family of believers here at City Light Church, North Adelaide, help us to be men and women who seek to define clearly what it is we believe, to build those high walls and yet to have big gates, to welcome people in who want to know more about Jesus. So Father, please help us to keep trusting Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.